Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The process of peacemaking and peacebuilding is always rooted in the capacity to have caring and mutually respectful conversations. It includes the capacity of listening, to hear not just the needs and concerns, but the life meanings of those with whom one is seeking to build relationships and interactive bridges. For those of us who are Christians, our motivation to wage peace is rooted in the Jewish understanding of God and God's shalom, and extended by the teachings of Jesus, especially in what we call his Sermon on the Mount. But our obedience towards peacemaking and peacebuilding also raises other questions for us as Christians. In a world and history that has always been diverse culturally and populated by a multiplicity of religions, spiritualities, and philosophies, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do we live faithfully in such context? In addition, how should we as Christians understand our relationship to other religions and faith approaches? What do we believe God wants of us in our attitudes and our actions toward those of other faiths? These are the questions that have occupied the personal faith journey and ministry of my guest in this episode. Dr. Robert Sellers has been a missionary and a seminary professor who has over 40 years of being personally involved in interfaith conversations and developing interfaith friendships. He has worked continuously to encourage others in their own locations to pursue such conversations and relationships. And he has created or has been a participant in numerous forums and contexts for these conversations and relationships locally, nationally, and internationally. He is here to share with us the wisdom of his experience and insights, especially as these enable the processes of peacemaking and peacebuilding, and also as these provide a guide for us for living faithfully as Christians in a diverse and pluralistic world. So welcome, Rob. Thank you for being with me. Well, I'm glad to be with you, David. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, so why don't we begin uh, kind of by letting us, letting you tell your own spiritual journey, particularly because you uh, kind of began uh, in missions and as a missionary and have made a, a journey into being very active in interfaith dialogue and conversation. So tell us about that. Well, I appreciate your using the word journey. It's a very important word to me. I might begin by saying that as a young man in 1973, I co-authored a musical with Bill O'Brien. And one of the lyrics that we used was called Journey, I'm on a journey to become. And the idea of the journey is an ancient metaphor for the kind of development and growth that all people hopefully uh, experience. And it certainly is a way of thinking about my background. In, uh, in thinking about a journey, I came across the understanding from uh, a psychotherapist named Easton Hamilton, who said that there is a, uh, 
particular process that we go through in which seemingly insignificant actions that we take in our life can lead us into habits which become patterns in our lives which develop our character. And uh, this is sometimes described as a, as a map because an, another uh, writer says that our personal identity is comprised of our places that have been significant in my in our lives. And so when I look back at my own life, David, I first of all, I'm appreciative of Christian parents who were open-minded, who encouraged me to be who I am, and who were okay with my having friends of other religions. And this was in the 1950s. And so uh, it was not unusual. It was unusual, I'd say, in uh, Pensacola and then in Tampa, maybe for a Baptist preacher's kid uh, to go to bar mitzvahs and to have other experiences from friends of other faiths. But I appreciate that my parents did that. I went off to Mississippi College and uh, encountered a very fine and uh, encouraging mentor in the BSU director who encouraged me to go overseas with the summer missions program. And in doing that, I was uh, introduced to Asia and to the beauty of the people and of that place. And one of the first experiences I had there was the uh, view of Smoky Mountain, the garbage dump of Manila, where people so desperately poor were living on the garbage heap of six million homes. And it occurred to me that while I'd been sent there by Mississippi Baptist University students to share good news, that news was not good if it did not include something to do with helping people experience all the fullness of life that God intends, feeding the hungry and helping the sick. And it was a sort of important moment for me as a young, uh, as a young man, as a young minister, to experience that. I went later back to Asia, both as a journeyman and then as a career missionary with my wife, Janie. And we lived on Java, the most crowded island of the nation of Indonesia made up of thousands of islands. And there on Java, we were surrounded by people of so many different faiths. Uh, of course, the dominant faith was Islam because Java or Indonesia is the most populous Muslim nation in the world. But there were Hindus and Buddhists and Confucians and Taoists and secularists uh, and people who followed folk religions, all sorts of people around us. And I became aware of the uh, integrity and the morality of so many of the people that I knew who followed other faiths. And I became intrigued with learning about other religions and thought about what would it be like? What is it like to live as a Christian in a pluralistic world on the island of Java or back in America, which Diana Eck now calls uh, the most um, religiously diverse nation in the world? And so uh, we came home having lost our visas to Indonesia in 1997. And since that time, I have made a very intentional study of religions and been very consciously focused upon engagement with people of other faiths, locally and nationally and internationally. 
And I'm convinced that my new mission in life is to uh, experience friendship and dialogue and cooperation with people of other faiths and to teach students and my friends and others in places where I have opportunity to speak that we should be engaging people of other faiths. That's a part of who God wants us to be, open, receptive, learning, listening, humble, and caring and compassionate neighbors to people of other faiths. And so I've made that transition from a missionary to a, I hope, world religionist and interfaith advocate, uh, Christian pluralist. Well, you speak of uh, the intersection, I guess, between your interfaith discoveries and your theological epiphanies. Uh, what has that intersection been? And you kind of also speak of yourself, I guess, as a pluralist uh, in comparison to exclusivist and inclusivist. Kind of talk about that. Well, I think when uh, we went to the mission field, we, we probably were exclusivists because we didn't know any different. We had both been raised in Southern Baptist churches and uh, we were committed to our faith and appointed to share that faith. But we were, uh, we were designated, I was designated as a youth evangelist and I never was very comfortable with the term evangelist. Um, but in the context of Java, with so many people around me who were following other traditions and who were equally uh, committed to their to their paths, uh, blessed by their way that they had known in which they had been born and had been growing, I began uh, this, as I said, conscious study of other faiths, and uh, and I and I had this understanding now that. Uh, there could be other valid faiths, other valid ways. And I came to understand it because, you know, John 14, 6 is that verse that so many Christians and my students over the years have, have asked about. Jesus said, you know, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. What does that mean? And I began to believe that the way that Jesus was speaking of was an ethical way. It was a pathway rather than a doorway. That uh, it was not a doorway marked salvation that one opens and walks through one time only, but that it is a pathway that leads uh, around curves and up and down hills and uh, throughout life as we strive to go where Jesus is going and do what Jesus did in his earthly life. Uh, I saw it as a an ethical way that, yeah, oddly enough, someone might say, people of other faiths were also following. They were living the Jesus ethical way. They were compassionate and forgiving and humble and uh, they cared about other people, and they, uh, they tried to help and to be kind. And I thought they are living the way, even though they don't, they don't uh, recite 
the propositional statements of Christian belief. They haven't prayed the prayer that so many would encourage them to pray, but they are living the Jesus way. And so I began to understand that there were ways that people could follow and in the living of their own particular tradition and beliefs, they might also be carrying out the ethical way of Jesus without even claiming to be Christian. And so I was very moved by, for example, the experience of Peter and Cornelius in the book of Acts, in Acts 10, uh, 34 and 35, when Peter says, I, I now see God shows no favorites, but that in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. Now, I realize that that was uh, a statement made in the context of Jew and Gentile uh, relationships. And Peter was having an aha moment that Gentiles could also come to know Christ. But I think when you take that verse and apply it in today's pluralistic context, I have to ask, what does that mean? That in any nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. And I come back to think about all of those people that I knew of different faiths who were living the Jesus ethical way. And I wonder, are they not going to be part of those sheep in another sheepfold? Are they not going to be there as well? Uh, I have a good, my wonderful mentor, John Johnson, uh, deceased now, but wonderful, wonderful scholar from South Africa and one of my professors was asked one time, Dr. Johnson, do you think you'll see Gandhi in heaven? And Dr. Johnson responded, oh, no. And the, the one who asked the question sort of sat back, maybe smiling, thinking, hmm, I'm justified in thinking Gandhi won't be in heaven. And then Dr. Johnson continued, no, uh, Gandhi will be so far ahead of me in heaven, I'll never get to see him. And it was a way of <laughs> John saying, uh, Yes, others who have lived the way that God desires will be there too. Well, I like the way that you use um, the poem about the blind men and the elephant. Uh, I've used that as well in my own classes. Uh, but kind of build on that is that you kind of explain how for you multiple paths are valid. Well, this poem of the blind man and the elephant, you know, which uh, describes this, this uh, situation in which six blind men who have never encountered an elephant are led to a, an animal and they each touch the elephant in a different place. And so they each have a different perception of what an elephant is like. And so the one who touches uh, the ears says an elephant is like a big fern or fan in the in the forest, the one who touches the tusk says, oh, an elephant is like a spear. And the one who touches the leg says, no, oh, the elephant is like a tree trunk. And the one who touches the elephant's side says, no, the elephant's like a wall. And the one who touches uh, the trunk says, oh, the elephant's like a snake. And the one who touches the tail says, oh, no, no, the elephant's like a rope. Well, the thing about that 
illustration is that it teaches various valid but very different perceptions of a larger reality that we that these blind men could not understand. And when you uh, understand how that could apply to an elephant, uh, if you will go ahead and say, well, no, nobody really has the whole understanding of the elephant in that illustration. They each only have a part of the understanding. If they put it all together, they would have a better picture of what an elephant is like. If you take that now and apply it to a much greater, larger mystery, the mystery of God, and then you say different people who have searched for God, who have touched God, have touched a part of the divine, they have understood a a small part of the enormity of the mystery. And so uh, neither uh, the Jew nor the Buddhist, the Christian nor the Hindu, the Sikh nor the Jain uh, has the total understanding of what the divine is like, even though each one is in his or her own experience touched a portion of the mystery. And so when we are willing to listen to one another and to hear one another's experiences, we can learn from one another and perhaps pick up an understanding of the divine that we've never thought of before. And that enhances our own knowledge and understanding and perception. And that helps us to grow in our own faith. It is not dangerous for us to do that. Instead, it is very wise for us to do that, to learn from, as Houston Smith said, the great the wisdom of the world's religions. And we need to bring those things to bear so that we can grow in our knowledge and understanding. You speak of that as being a distinctly Christian way. Explain that a little more. Well, I think it's a distinctly Christian way of relating to people because it validates uh, every person, regardless of their ethnicity or their religion or their background, as a creation of God, as a child of God, loved by God, and someone from whom we can learn much. I think it's a distinctly Christian way to be affirming and accepting of those who are different rather than judgmental or excluding them or judging them or pre-judging them to say, I could never learn anything from that person. One of the important characteristics of interfaith dialogue is the willingness to be convinced that uh, you are wrong or that you can learn something. In other words, if you go into dialogue already being totally convinced that your way is the only right way, that you have all of the answers, you have nothing to learn, then the dialogue will, will not be successful. This translates into what a missionary should do. And in our experience as missionaries, we had to go into a new setting as learners, as listeners, so that we uh, were picking up on the signals, the cues, and the insights of the people of Indonesia. And that was helping us to know how to relate to people better. And uh, if we had gone in simply to tell and to talk and to preach and never to listen and to learn, uh, we would not have been very good missionaries. And I think this is uh, a, a Christian uh, 
technique that we should all be developing, uh, learning and listening to others, not afraid to encounter difference. Uh, Diana Eck, uh, a, a friend who teaches at Harvard and started the Pluralism Project, a committed Methodist Christian, says that pluralism is the, the, the recognition of religious diversity, but the desire to engage these different commitments uh, that are around us and to spend time listening and learning and cooperating together. And so I think it's a very Christian thing to do, uh, to have inter-religious relationships. Well, you talk about um, wanting to continue to serve God and do God's work. Um, but you see this work as different specifically from evangelism. Uh, so explain what that is. Well, I would say that I was a, a very unusual Baptist missions professor in the sense that I did not talk about evangelism or evangelistic techniques uh, I did not talk about unreached people groups or um, I did not talk about the Great Commission in terms of verbal witness. That does not mean that I do not think those things are important. However, I think that uh, I wanted to stress different approaches, the nonverbal witness, the witness of humanitarian aid, and of interfaith relationships built on dialogue and cooperation. So um, I, I think that that primarily uh, evangelicals and especially Baptists in our context are focused upon evangelism. I know that the mission agency that we used to serve uh, with in Indonesia became the International Mission Board and uh, primarily focused its work on evangelism and church planting. And uh, when I took students to uh, Indonesia or Mo uh, Macedonia or other places where we went on study abroad trips, we did see a distinctive difference in the way that IMB missionaries and CBF missionaries were carrying on their primary work. And on the one hand, evangelism and church planting, and on the other hand, uh, social ministries. And so we saw those two ways of doing it, and some of my students really connected with evangelism, and other students really connected with social ministries, humanitarian aid, and interfaith dialogue. And so, um, I would say that I agree with um, the, the perspective that both of these are important. Uh, that uh, Ronald Sider, some years ago, wrote a book called Good News and Good Works, A Theology for the Whole Gospel. And I agree with Sider that verbal, evangel verbal witness, evangelism, as we know it in the Baptist church, is important. Uh, but so are good works. And so often I think this uh, combination of, of the two, good works and good news, 
it's imbalanced. And so I, I, I have chose to stress the good works. I also think this is a matter of uh, particular giftedness. Some people are gifted, according to New Testament uh, books. They have a spiritual gift of preaching or evangelizing. And others have the gift of helping and, and other sorts of spiritual gifts that uh, are maybe non-verbal non ways of witnessing. I used to ask my students uh, in, in, in classes, particularly undergraduate missions classes, if you were to go to an African village where infants and toddlers had been dying of diarrhea and dysentery because of dirty water, and you and your church members, team members, were able to dig a well and provide clean drinking water for that village and save the lives of children in the future, but you did not get to have revival services or talk about living water, were you still doing God's mission in the world? And sometimes they would say, no, no, that's just, that's just, uh, you know, that's just something that anyone could do. It's not really a mission. And I would say, no, I, I, I feel like it is God's mission in the world. I feel like it is doing what Jesus commanded us to do in John 21, to feed my sheep, to take care of my little ones, that we have been so focused on the great commission that we have committed the great omission, that we have not done enough of taking care of God's little ones. And so I, I tried to focus in my own teaching on these things that, that we can do that will give us opportunities, I think, uh, as, as, as time allows and as people are interested in sharing our faith. I believe it was John Claypool that I first heard talk about the answering witness, so that when perhaps we return to that village to check on the well the next summer, and we discover that the same people are so now flourishing because of good drinking water and their children are not dying of dysentery, they may say, what, what brought you here? Why are you here? What, what, what made you Americans want to come to our little village and do this? And we get a chance to answer that inquiry and to say it's the love of Christ in us that compels us to come here. And we get to share the hope that is in us. Uh, but, but we don't force that at the first, at the, at the outset. We go and we do the good deed, the good work. And it enables us perhaps to share the good news verbally at a later point in time. I like the image you used of companions in Christ or companions with Christ. Uh, talk about that. Well, I was uh, made aware of this uh, in, a, in a fresh way in 2019 when I was invited to go to Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates to participate uh, in another meeting of the Forum for the Promotion of Peace, uh, a Muslim uh, initiative and effort that followed up on a common word between us and you and the way that uh, so many Muslims in the world today are uh, interfaith advocates and peacemakers. And gathered at that meeting were 
some uh, 500 or so Muslim leaders from around the world, many uh, government officials, religious uh, leaders, civic and uh, organizational uh, experts. And uh, as well, there were other representatives of the Abrahamic faith. So there were Jewish rabbis and scholars. There were Christians uh, like myself there who were observing and participating. And in that meeting in which a charter for uh, a new alliance of virtues was discussed and ratified and signed, uh, I, I discovered that there were many companions of Christ. Now, some, some of those, of course, were the other Christians, Lutherans and Presbyterians and Catholics and others who were there, along with Baptists and, and, and like myself. They were companions of Christ doing Christ's good work of peacemaking and being involved uh, with, with others from other faiths who are committed to peacemaking. But also it might be interesting to say that those, uh, those Muslims who were there who were committed to peacemaking could have been conceived of as companions of the Christ, the Christ, not, not a Jesus necessarily, although Muslims highly re revere Christ and regard Christ but um, Jesus, Jesus, but the Christ, so that uh, they, they were, could be included in that beatitude of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And, and so these Muslims, these Jews, these Christians of many types, they're working on global peace initiatives, were companions of Christ. And I think it's important that we we look toward others who may be just like us or different from us, but who are doing the Christ work, who are walking the Christ way, who are following the ethical way, and partner with them, cooperate with them, and learn how, in fact, they could be companions along the way as we seek to do Christ's work in the world. Um, speak about the charter a little bit. Uh, the charter for the new alliance of virtue. Uh, what was the nature of that and, and what was its purpose? And what does it do? What kind, of, what kind of work does that kind of document do? Well, the charter uh, that I referenced that, that, that was ratified in 2019 in Abu Dhabi, is, uh, it is a document that has come out of six meetings of this uh, forum for the promotion of peace. Uh, and I've attended four of those in uh, Marrakesh in Washington, D.C., and two in Abu Dhabi. Um, it, is, it is based upon the first alliance of virtues that was uh, instigated by the Prophet Muhammad in Mecca in the seventh century. That was uh, a pact that was uh, established between those followers of Muhammad and, and, and people of other religious traditions in, uh, in Mecca and Medina, who were not, you know, in, in his group, but who had virtue and who had honorable character and who had noble uh, values. And so this original alliance wanted to hold in common these virtues among the people gathered in, in Mecca and Medina. 
And so based upon that and many other documents like the United Nations Declaration of, of, of Universal Values and so forth, the new alliance calls for the elevation of virtues as understood by the, the three Abrahamic religions to serve the purpose of, of, of uh, pursuing peace and tolerance and mutual understanding among people of all types, people of all groups, regardless, regardless of their ethnicity or their religion or their uh, nationality. And uh, it is motivated by the awareness that uh, religious persecution and violence is growing around the world, that uh, there is an understanding that, uh, that religion is the problem, it is the cause of this, that is a false understanding according to this charter, that, uh, that religion is the problem, they see it as the solution. Uh, it is also based upon the conviction that even though we have uh, great theological distinctions and differences, we have many shared ethical values. And it uh, is based upon very important principles like human dignity, freedom of conscience, tolerance, justice, mercy, peace, kindness, solidarity, and keeping covenants. Its purpose to, is to enlist people all, all around the world, but particularly in, in Muslim nations, to enlist religious leaders to promote, promote peace and tranquility, to uh, encourage positive citizenship, to encourage people of all faiths to respect each other, and to protect the rights of minority peoples, and to support international accords. And so this uh, charter of a new alliance, based upon the original alliance in the seventh century, this one in 2019, um, of course it was written up, much has been written about it, and uh, it, is, it was taken back to all of these Muslim nations uh, by, by those who attended with the intention of trying to uh, spread the, the word that peace is better than conflict and that we have a, an important part through our separate religious uh, convictions to bring about peace. You've been very involved in putting together dialogues, uh, Baptist-Muslim dialogues. Uh, describe those and then kind of give us some insight into how those, what happens when you get there, how those go about it. I think it might have been um, the CBF meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, some years ago, during which the um, American Baptist Churches USA was also meeting for their annual meeting in Washington. And uh, I became acquainted with and later uh, great friends with Roy Medley, who was uh, the executive director of American Baptist Churches USA and and Roy and uh, and others and, and myself, we met together in Washington and we felt like that uh, in our current situation in the United States and in the world that there were there, there were occasionally you know inter interreligious dialogues, Jewish Christian, Christian Muslim, but we wanted as Baptists 
uh, specifically to engage Baptists and Muslims in, in dialogue. And so we planned for uh, the first national Baptist-Muslim dialogue. I think it was held in 2008 at the campus of Andover Newton Theological School and in uh, in the Boston area, we invited 40 Muslim scholars and 40 Christian scholars together for more academic understanding. We took the common word between us and you that the Muslim world had sent to the Christian world, and we took the idea. Uh, the common word is love of God and love of neighbor. That's common in both the Quran and in the Bible, and so we took. Part of that is the theme for the opening, this this first dialogue, and that was uh, the love of neighbor. And uh, so we wanted to emphasize in that, what does it mean to love our neighbor according to our scriptures, according to our traditions, and according to our daily lives? And we invited three Muslim scholars and three Christian scholars to address these topics. And so we'd have a Muslim scholar talk about um, what it means to love neighbor in in uh, the Quran, and then a Christian scholar, what does it mean to love neighbor in the Bible, and so forth through the through the three topics, followed by small group discussions in which Muslims and Christians or Baptists were were engaged in these groups. We went to Friday prayers at a local mosque. We had a Sunday worship service. We shared meals together, and we had a wonderful time all weekend long. And uh, after that was over, we uh, we quickly began to think about doing it again. And so then we had a second one at Andover Newton a, a couple of years later, in which we in, we invited more. Uh, I think at that one we we tried to get sixty and sixty, and and uh, we talked about our understanding of love of God. That was a little more a uh, little little more uh, difficult. Because of the, uh, you know, as you might understand, the idea of the Trinity and, and and other ideas about the nature of God that that set up, but it set up wonderful dialogue. And again, it was a time of of listening, of uh, encouragement to talk and and uh, respect and courtesy and the like. And then there was a third, and we we the same group of of uh, planners, particularly Roy and, and uh, myself and, and a few others, thought Let's, we need to engage young Baptists and young Muslims because they are the future. And so we went this time to uh, Green Lake Conference Center, American Baptist Retreat Center in Wisconsin. And um, we, uh, we spent several days uh, a little bit different this time and great sharing and and the opportunity to uh, get to know one another a lot of exchanging of emails a lot of laughter a lot of a lot of uh, casual times what comes out of dialogue such as this is is the removal of fear of the unknown of the difference it, there is a there is a willingness now to put faces to what may have just been stereotypes of categories of people, and now we know individual Muslims, and they know individual Christians, and we like one another, and we've listened to learn from each other. Uh, so, so that kind of interfaith dialogue is very important. 
but it, but I've I've been involved in other kinds of dialogues locally through the Abilene Interfaith Council, and there are thousands, literally thousands, of grassroots interfaith organizations around the globe, like our little one in Abilene, and uh, we'd invite guests and we sat around the table. We had a motto: breaking bread together in peace, and we listened to different people's faith stories. And we learn from each other. I've been involved in, in larger experiences, such as the Parliament of the World's Religions. And, uh, and I, was, uh, I, was, I was honored to, to chair that organization. And we planned these massive interfaith international meetings. The, the one that we planned when I was chair was in Toronto, Ontario in 2018. We had about 8,400 people from 70 countries. And for a week, they met together and, uh, and with people who were different. There were a thousand breakout sessions in the afternoon and multiple plenary sessions with speakers like the Dalai Lama and uh, the head of the World Bank and you know all kinds of important uh, perspectives to be shared and, and, uh, and experienced. So I, I am convinced that dialogue, which is intended to bring about mutual understanding and build friendship, is extremely important. Dialogue should never be used as a gimmick for getting to the witness, a part of uh, and I, I don't mean that we don't witness through dialogue, but getting to the, you know, sharing the plan of salvation and trying to convert the dialogue partner. Uh, interfaith dialogue is an opportunity for me to learn about the religious experience of my dialogue partner and for he or she to learn about mine. Now, in the context of that, obviously, we're going to share our ideas. We we are, in fact, giving a witness to our faith, but with the purpose of understanding one another better and coming to enjoy one another's friendship, not convert one another to, to our uh, ways of thinking. So uh, out of dialogue can then come cooperation. When we agree together uh, as, a, as a group or as two individuals to work on a common problem that we're facing in the Baptist world, in the Muslim world, what have you. So in a community where a pastor and, a, and an imam and a rabbi become friends and then lead their congregations to work on some problem of homelessness or uh, some other problem in their community, that is a, an extension of dialogue and the opportunity to do good things together. One of the ways you talked about living out your own Christian faith um, is your understanding of the atonement. Kind of talk with us about that. <laughs> well, I think uh, it's fair to say that the dominant theory of the atonement is the substitutionary atonement theory in which Jesus died to save us from our sins. But there have been other 
theories of the meaning of the atonement or the meaning of Jesus' death. Let me say it that way. And, and one of those is the martyr theory in which Jesus was martyred because of the beliefs that he held in the life that he lived. And another is the exemplar, the moral exemplar theory in which Jesus gives the example of how to live a moral life, even to the point of death. And the idea that greater love has no one than this, but to give your life for others. And so if you, if you think about, if you think about atonement or the death of Jesus only as substitutionary atonement, uh, this, this, this does not have meaning initially and maybe ever for people who follow, father, excuse me, follow other faiths and who are not thinking about sin and heaven or forgiveness and salvation. They have different end goals. You know, they may be thinking about, uh, if they are Hindu, they may be thinking about moksha or the, um, the, the uh, cessation of the endless cycle of rebirth. If they're Buddhist, they're thinking about nirvana or the uh, extinguishing of desire. If they are Muslim, they may be thinking about najat, that is the escaping the fires of, of hell uh, and enjoying the pleasures of paradise because they have followed uh, the guidance and the will of, of, of Allah. If they're Confucian, they may be thinking about the Tao or the way that is uh, in harmony with the universal nature of life. If they are Taoist, they may be thinking about Ren or the kinds of specific ways of living in civil society that make us enjoy life together. But their end goals are different and they're not thinking about salvation. So, so it is not accurate to talk about all roads lead to the top of the mountain because as Mark Heim says in his book, Salvations, there are multiple mountains. There are different end goals. And so um, we, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be talking in language that is peculiar to our way of thinking with those who, who have another whole understanding of, of, uh, of spirituality. So when it comes to atonement, it doesn't make as much sense, perhaps, to be talking about substitutionary atonement and Jesus dying for our sins. But it does make sense in these other contexts, perhaps, to talk about martyrdom or talk about the moral example of Jesus, uh, because they have martyr figures and they understand moral example personages as well. And so when we can share about how Jesus gave his life uh, for others willingly, volunteer, voluntarily uh, gave up his life as a martyr and how he through that moral example shows us the greatest depth of love that we can show to someone else. Those Maybe those things can resonate with people of other faiths and they can understand why we, we love Jesus and why we follow Jesus, because that makes sense to them. Well, as our final question, um, 
How is it on a, in a kind of practical way that uh, individual churches, uh, individual Christians uh, can engage in interfaith dialogue? I think it's so important, David, as individuals, as Christians, to think the best of others who are different from ourselves. Let's not believe everything we read on Facebook. Let's not be guilty of passing along uh, misinformation or spurious uh, accounts of, of people that are different. Let's, uh, let's be kind in our responses and in our remarks. Let's, as individuals, be open to learn and uh, eager to build friendships with those who are different. I know it is a tendency of all of us to feel more comfortable around people who are like us. And when we go into a new setting, we tend to seek out those that understand life like we do. But it is enriching to get to become friends with people who are different and because they add to our own understanding. And uh, we, we should be eager to do that and open and not fearful of that. Now, as churches, I, I would love to see churches to become more open to interfaith dialogue. I think uh, through education, there could be seminars, there could be uh, film studies about the religions. We could invite guests into the church from other faiths that uh, will talk about uh, their faiths and answer questions. I think we need to, you know, be careful about who we invite and, and know who these people are, but I think that's extremely important to do that. Uh, I, I think it's important for us to expose teenagers, even, even children, to ideas that there are people of other faiths that are good people and that we need to appreciate and get to know. I think we can, we could, we could have uh, trips to visit mosques and uh, temples and mandirs and gurdwaras in our community if we live in, live in large cities or even make field trips. Uh, you know why? Why should seniors only go to see the? the leaves in the Smoky Mountains or go to a big restaurant somewhere in uh, Amarillo and eat steak, if they could also have a trip to, to visit these different places and have an opportunity to learn from those who are different. I think we could uh, do so many things in the local church that would expose church members to good things about people of other faiths. Houston Smith said that it is very important that we not compare the very best of our own tradition with the worst in another tradition. You know, it's not fair to talk about um, Christianity, which is for forgiving and loving and compassionate, but such and such religion that is hateful, and we give an example of the very worst of that. We have things that are very bad about Christians and about aspects of Christian history, but we tend to remember the good things. So Smith says, let's compare the good things in Christianity with the good things in other religions. That's something that can be done in the local church. And I would love to see pastors give, um, give good balanced uh, sermons or references to people of other faiths 
we need to guard our words. We don't need to speak of those who follow other traditions as non-Christians, as if they are just understood by a, a negative. They are not us, so they're non-Christians. We need to think about how we talk about people. So these are some of the things, I guess, in a practical sense that individuals and churches could do. Well, Rob, I am grateful for the work you have done and thankful that you have given us a lot to think about. Uh, So thank you for being with us today. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak